0: Our text this morning is a gospel lesson just read from Luke chapter 19. It's the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as he begins this dramatic and the final week of his life. Jesus' humiliation and suffering, which he's embraced from the beginning, the very beginning, from the moment he became incarnate, is now reaching its culmination. He's moving... Here, from palms into the to passion, from palms to passion, into the heart of the passion. And by passion we mean his suffering, the mystery of his suffering. This is for him the end of his Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You'll recall that all Israel was required to come to Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts. Passover was one of them. For Jesus he starts the pilgrimage in the northeast part of the country up in Galilee and his band of disciples have been walking through the Judean desert and climbing the whole time altitude wise and the last leg of the journey just before our text starts at Jericho which is a thousand feet below sea sea level in the Jordan River Valley east of Jerusalem the lowest city in the world and verse 28 so this is Luke 19, verse 28, tells us that Jesus is going on ahead, leading them as they go up to Jerusalem. And near the very end of this journey, you have to climb the Mount of Olives. And now the Mount of Olives is itself charged with all of these associations concerning the appearance of the Messiah. Zechariah 14 says the Mount of Olives is the place where the feet of the Messiah will be seen. So they draw near to Bethpage and Bethany. At this point, they're one mile from Jerusalem. One mile. Bethany sits on the east side of the mountain, on the Jericho side. And once you pass Bethany, you're ready to sort of crest the summit of the mountain and then Jerusalem. The beloved but apostate city comes into view immediately. Then down the bottom of the mountain is the Kidron Valley. And across the valley, sitting on a little hill of its own, is Jerusalem. Now, it'd be very exciting, exhilarating, to get to this point with a group of people on pilgrimage. It's springtime. The city is swarming with pilgrims from all over the world, from all over the empire. Hundreds of thousands ready to celebrate Passover. And for Jesus, who really is choreographing this whole scene in our text, who is staging a little drama for us, this is a key moment in his mission. Up till now, in the Gospels, he would often tell people not to disclose who he was. You'll read the Gospels and you'll see that repeatedly. Scholars call this the Messianic secret. He keeps his Messiahship sort of close to the vest, secret. And now, coming to the end, he takes this very deliberate, very self-conscious step in public to say to the city and to say to the assembled worshipers from around the world, I am the Messiah. I am the King of the Jews. That's what he's doing in this text. So we'll look at it under two headings. They're there in the back inside of your bulletin. Palms and passion. Palms and passion. So first the palms. Jesus tells two of the disciples to go into this nearby village, find a cult, a donkey on which no one has ever ridden. They're to untie it. They're to bring it to him. It's a strange way to choreograph the scene, but it has an important cultural background. The background here is something in the Roman Empire known as the Agoria, and that was a kind of postal system that the empire had for royal dispatches to send messages or to shuttle dignitaries around from one place to another, usually on horses, not always, but usually. And the supply of the horses or the animals by the public was mandatory, right? It wasn't optional. And the privilege of using the agoria was extended to rabbis. So as weird as it sounds to us, Jesus' commandeering of this animal here is not that unusual. So verse 31 says, uh, Jesus tells them, if anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord needs it. As a rabbi under Roman law, he has a right to the animal." Nevertheless, he respects the earthly owners of the beast and he gives them a reason, an explanation, something that functions here a lot like a password, like a secret password. The Lord has need of it. You can see in the text that everything follows perfectly. It happens just the way Jesus said it would happen. The owners of the cult say to them, why are you untying the cult?" And Luke gives us a little important play on words here because the word for owners of the cult is actually lords. When the lords of the cult say, why are you untying it? Jesus' disciples follow his instructions and they say, the Lord has need of it. And so Jesus is presenting here himself as the Lord of all things, all creatures. He's the owner Of the donkeys on a thousand hills. They are the lords of the cult, but he's the lord of all things. This is one of the things that shows forth his divinity in these narratives toward the end of his life in the Gospels. This sort of sovereign self possession, the serenity he has in the midst of the storm that's swirling around him. And that is what's going on here. He's the lord of heaven and earth. And so the disciples start to throw their own cloaks on the cult, apparently creating some sort of a makeshift saddle. But the symbolism here is much, much deeper. If you go back into the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 9, there's a king, Jehu, he's anointed. And the people place their garments under his feet. So that's being evoked. The people here are publicly acknowledging Jesus as the messianic king. Yes, the people are, have a sort of garbled and confused and unclear understanding, but their basic instinct is right. That's what they're doing with the clothes. And th- this becomes clearer uh, down at the end of verse 35, where we're told that the people put Jesus on the donkey. He doesn't mount it himself. He's enthroned by the people. And they go along. They spread their clothes on the road as well. A sort of cheap, makeshift red carpet, if you will. A very atypical pathway for Israel's king. Jesus is the producer of this little play. Remember this. He's walked the whole way. You know, dozens, a couple of tens of miles, 20, 30, 40 miles. He's walked the whole way. There's absolutely no physical reason for him to ride in the last mile. In fact, they had climbed the whole way on foot, and now it's on the visible descent into the Kidron Valley at the base of the city that he decides he's going to ride. It's curious. But Matthew and John tell us explicitly why he did this. It's a stage drama. He did it, they say, to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. We saw it in our call to worship. Sitting on a donkey. So this is a kingly scene. It's a messianic scene but it's not typical worldly kingship, right? Victorious kings, the dignitaries of this age, they ride in on war horses, right? Not rented donkeys. So Jesus is publicly here taking on the mantle of messianic king, but he is, as we've seen over and over again, redefining what that kingship means. They expected a militaristic Messiah that would slaughter their enemies, remove the Roman yoke, and instead they're getting this. They're going to get this lowly, suffering servant who comes proclaiming peace. But it's important to make some connections here. This is a prelude to what we will see on Good Friday. Enthroned on the donkey, he shall be enthroned on the cross. Sometimes this scene is called, I think incorrectly, Jesus' triumphal entry. As long as you understand that the word triumphal there is ironic. It's a sort of a triumphal entry, a sort of inverted form of triumph. Now, Luke doesn't record it, but in the other Gospels, we're told, we know, that the crowd lays down these palm branches in front of Jesus as well as he comes into the city. And palms were used, among other things, they were a sign of the king's triumph. And at the end of the Bible, there's this beautiful passage in Revelation chapter 7. In the heavenly liturgy, in the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, there's a scene with a great multitude that no one can count. From every tribe and tongue and language and nation, they're clothed in white. And guess what? They have palm branches in their hands. Revelation chapter 7. And they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what we have here in this text in Luke's gospel, is the humble, sort of B-grade, you know, lowly origin of that glorious scene. Make no mistake, though, that the two two scenes are connected. This scene is necessary for that scene. It's fascinating how the crowd's instincts here are so profound. What do they do next? They quote Psalm 118. It's a psalm which is also full of messianic overtones. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they've enthroned Jesus with their clothes. They're mounting him on the donkey, their palms. And now they acclaim him as king in the language of Israel. scripture from Psalm 118. And right after the verse they cite, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 speaks of the sacrifice being bound to the horns of the altar. The palms that are being laid out for this kind of king end with him being bound and enthroned on an altar of sacrifice. The palms lead to the passion, which is our second point. The first thing that Jesus does as he draws near to the city is weep over it. Lamenting, he says, that they have not known the things that would make for peace. This is a very strange kind of conquering king. He comes not only in lowliness, in this sort of you know, grade B stage production, but he comes weeping. He's done this earlier in Luke's gospel, lamenting over the city. In the prior lament, he says this. He says, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know, those are words from our Lord that they evoke an almost inconsolable longing that he has. And I think right here, it's it's remarkable that Luke puts this scene, which is often left out of Palm Sunday readings. He puts this scene of Jesus weeping over the city as he comes in on the donkey to give us a sort of rare glimpse into the depth of Jesus' love and pity. How does he feel? How does he feel about the bloody city? The, one, the city that he himself has pronounced a woe upon. Right? The generation that he has charged with all the righteous blood from the foundation of the world. The city that he describes as the one that kills the prophets And stones those who are sent to her. And the city that is about to do the same to him. How does he feel about that city? He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers the brood under her wings. He applies to himself this motherly image of a hen protecting her chicks from danger with her very life. He yearns, even in this hour, to gather them, to say to the enemies of Jerusalem, you can't harm them without tearing my flesh. He wants his life to be given for theirs. And notice, this is a steadfast emotional state in Jesus. It's not a passing thing. He says... How often have I had this well up within me to gather you together? It's a very illuminating glimpse into the depths of the heart of Jesus Christ, into his love. But there's something deeply tragic about the way Luke cites it, because Jesus knows the hour is too late for the bloody city. He says in verse 44. That Jerusalem, having squandered her chance at peace, will be left in rubble. Not one stone will be, will be not thrown down. You know what happens from history, right? Rome devastates the city in 70 AD. And so we have this stark choice, right? To reject this strange, triumphal entry is to submit to the brutal, triumphal entry of the Roman armies. Jerusalem is decimated. We're going to sing about the holy city in a little while, but the Jerusalem that sings is the Jerusalem from above. And the palm part of Palm Sunday is over. The moment he is put on the donkey, he starts weeping for the city. He enters into the passion and the lethal collision that awaits him And about that passion, I want to now speak. Now, we preach most of the time on Palm Sunday, as today, on Jesus' entry on a donkey into the city. It's a common practice. Many, if not most, churches do it. Now, this may sound odd, but there is something wrong, something quite inadequate with doing it with preaching just these triumphal entry donkey texts today. Here's what I'm going to get at here. Um, Palm Sunday is really known in the traditional liturgies of the church as Passion Sunday or Palm slash Passion Sunday. Some of you who grew up in certain traditions may know this. There is traditionally a kind of liturgy of the palms, a kind of entrance, entrance liturgy with palms into the church, a procession. The text about Jesus on the donkey may be read or chanted or sung there, but the service itself is called the Liturgy of the Passion. Our Old and New Testament texts today were taken from the Liturgy of the Passion. They are both texts about Jesus' suffering unto death. And you know what would happen next in the Liturgy of the Passion? There would be a gospel lesson. And here the church would normally read the whole total account of Jesus' passion. All of it. In Luke's gospel, do you know what that means? 113 verses. Sort of gives uh, remain standing for the gospel lesson, a new meaning. <laughs> there is no other place in the church year where this is done. And the church does it so that we realize in one sitting or one standing the full extent, the scope of Jesus' suffering and his love for us that follows this strange entry into Jerusalem. It is true, of course, that the church will focus on Thursday on Jesus' betrayal and the institution of the supper and Friday on his cross, but even there, usually the seven last words are read, not the whole long passion narratives. Those are to be read here. Now, as I said, a lot of churches don't do it. It's logistically difficult. We had the blessing, I hope, of, of doing it over the last couple of weeks where we looked at the passion narrative in John's gospel. I hope that was a blessing. which deepens your love for Christ. We love because he first loved us. And that love is nowhere more vividly seen than in those passion narratives, which are to be read slowly and lovingly and often. And the church calendar reminds us of that. It gives you an opportunity, at least once a year, to do so. You should not arrive at Easter unaccosted by those passion narratives in the Gospels. You should read them. Read one from a different gospel every year. So my concern here is this. If you just go year after year, think about this. This may be the case with many of us. If you just go year after year from a sort of festive, low-rent, low-level joy of Palm Sunday, the kids and the palms, to, to the next Sunday being Easter Sunday, over and over again, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, that, in fact, is a misrepresentation of the gospel. It misses, it misses the passion and the drama that occurred on Thursday and Friday and that is recorded at great length in the word of God. If you add up in the four gospels, the passion narratives, That is the detailed account of Jesus' suffering, the scourging, the whips, the thorns, the spitting, the beating, the nails. It comes to 450 verses. They are just passion narratives, the Gospels, with long introductions. And that's why the church has traditionally put reading the Passion today on Palm Passion Sunday. Among other things, the church knows not many will be back till Easter. So, no, we didn't read it, but we did engage it over the last two weeks. And that's the key point. And I bring bring this up because it's a reminder. It's a reminder that the palms and the passion cannot be separated. The church has always understood that. There's something fraudulent about a sort of low-level, festive Palm Sunday joy left standing there by itself. The palms and the passion can't be separated. And so that's a reminder to us about what it means to follow the one on the donkey. We have to share his humility if we want to partake of his glory. We have to partake of his, course, you know, of his cross if we want to share in the power of the resurrection. We must descend with him if we want to ascend. And knowing that the palms are followed immediately in Luke's gospel by the long, agonizing passion, right? The spirit then, the spirit is asking us, what kind of followers are we? Like, What kind of a follower are you? What kind of a disciple are we? What kind of a king do we want? Why are we here in this crowd anyway? Why are we here in this crowd? You know, when we call Jesus the Christ, Christ, as you know, is not his last name. It's a title, which means the anointed one, but it means messianic king. Jesus is king, and that means to confess faith in him is a public pledge of allegiance. Why are we in the crowd? We're not just amusingly looking at the spectacle of the king. We are pledging allegiance to him. So without being melodramatic, no one should pick up any palms who is unwilling to have nails driven into their hands. No one should pick up any palms who is unwilling to have nails driven into their hands. Following Jesus means following him into Jerusalem and all the way to Golgotha. And so this Sunday has always been, for Christians and the Christian community, a time to take stock and to reconsider the cost of being behind this one in this procession. Remember, on this very journey, to this very scene, Jesus turns around to the crowd. It's just a little earlier in Luke's gospel. And he says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He can shuffle along in the crowd." cannot be my disciple whoever does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple unless we think that that's a, a strange statement Jesus says something akin to that seven count them seven times in the gospels so his point is simple and it's bracing right in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words the, the famous german pastor martyred under hitler when christ calls a man he bids him to come and die And so we must be careful. We must be chastened not to falsify the joy of this day with its odd air of festivity by separating it from the dread of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. And the palm slash passion combination reminds us vividly of that. Or to put this another way, beloved, how does one get from laying palms in front of this donkey to waving palms in that scene with a great multitude in heaven in Revelation 7. Well, we're told in Revelation 7. Who are these that are waving these palms? These are the ones who have made their robes white with the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who have come through the great tribulation. You get from these palms to those palms by martyrdom, by witness. None of this, none of this is to make us morbid. Let us be of good cheer. Right? Let us be of good cheer. This sobriety is for us the wellspring of gladness. We are sobered up so we can be genuinely glad. Because the king who goes ahead of us goes alongside of us. And this king has in his utter, naked, lacerated body and humility... Overcome the world. We are right here at the glory of the Christian faith. When we look at the cross, what we want to say as Christian people reflecting on it is that the worst thing that can possibly happen has happened. Now, there's a lot of fears people have. They think if that happened to be terrible, and if this happened, and I'm afraid of this, and I'm afraid of that, and I worry about this, and I worry about Let me tell you, the worst thing that can possibly happen in the cosmos has happened. God has appeared among us, and we have killed him. We have spit on him. And we have delivered him over to death. And that worst thing that can possibly happen is the gateway to the grandest thing. That can possibly happen. This God has conquered your death. Pardoned your sins. Opened to you the gift of everlasting life. There's no fear in this gospel. There's no illusions in it either. So let us be of good cheer. Let your heart take courage. Jesus is a kind and a gentle. A patient and a compassionate king. He is full of. Of rich mercy. The same kind of mercy we see him displaying. Toward the city which is about to slay him. His yoke. That yoke which claims the totality of our lives. That yoke which says to follow me you have to hate yourself. Your mother, your brother, your father, your sister. That yoke is easy. And that burden is light. Sharp as this call to follow and die is. It is a grand liberation for us, right? It is a monstrous thing to try and be your own God. It is a burden you cannot bear. So, taking up one's cross and following Jesus is an end to weariness and it's an end to heavy burdens. It's the beginning of rest. So, let us be of good cheer, rejoicing without illusions joining the crowd to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us be of good cheer, because you are destined to wave palms in the heavenly multitude and say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Amen.